Father, as we, as we open up your word and as we read it and study it and, and preach it and receive it, uh, Lord, we ask for your help. Lord, these are your words. They are completely true. They are completely pure. They are powerful. They are wise. They are righteous. Help us read them with, with reverence and with awe, with joy and delight. And we know that it is through your word that we have eternal life, and it is through your word that you give our souls the daily nourishment that we need. And so, uh, Lord, may we, may we feast well on your word this morning. Uh, please uh, be with those in our congregation, Lord, that are ill. We ask that you would bring a quick healing to them. And Lord, I ask for me that you would strengthen me and that you would give me the words to speak that you want us to hear and receive this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning, church. Go ahead, and if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open up to the book of Esther. And uh, Esther chapter 1, Esther, if you open up your Bible right in the middle, uh, you go to the left, it's just before uh, Job and the Psalms, it's just after Ezra and Nehemiah. If you've got one of the church Bibles, one of those blue Bibles, it's on page 451. And uh, this is our second uh, week of probably a 10-part sermon series where we are preaching through the book of Esther. And uh, thank you, Sarah, for for reading it for us. She drew the short straw for scripture readers on uh, all the names that she had to read, but you did awesome, so thank you. Uh, But I know that wasn't uh, a coveted position this morning to be the scripture reader, so uh, thank you. Uh, now let me let me recap a little bit uh, for you for those that haven't gotten a chance to listen to last week's sermon or for those of us that just need a little refreshing, okay? The story of Esther is taking place in the city of Susa, Susa, which is in modern-day Iran, uh, which was not planned to be with current events going on. It just, uh, I guess, God providentially allowed that, right? So this is happening in the city of Susa, which is in modern-day Iran, and it's one of the capital cities of the Persian Empire. And the Persian Empire is the empire that conquered the Babylonians. And the Babylonians were the ones who had destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple. They had taken the people of God into exile. And then eventually the Persian Empire comes along with Cyrus the Great, who defeats the Babylonians. And the Medes in the Persian Empire is then established and takes over much of the known world. And Cyrus the Great uh, made a decree that the people of God could then return to Jerusalem and to start rebuilding the temple. And we read about that in Ezra chapter 1. And so Zerubbabel and others, they, they go to rebuild the temple. They meet some opposition. Uh, the temple then is finally finished under King Darius. And then after King Darius is Xerxes, which that's the king we're dealing with here. Or uh, it's, it's written in some of your translations as Ahasuerus, or I tried to pronounce it in Hebrew last week, Ahasverosh. And so I'm just going to call him Xerxes because it's a lot easier. And I just, that's... Uh, what I'm going to do. So that's the king we're talking about, Xerxes. And then after Xerxes comes Artaxerxes, uh, who uh, was, uh, Nehemiah was the cupbearer too. And so if you're trying to read your Bible chronologically, the story of Esther fits between about Ezra chapter 6 and 7. Okay, that's where the story of Esther. So that's, that's historically where we're at. We're in the Persian Empire. Uh, king Xerxes is ruling Uh, Some of the Jewish people, some of God's people have returned to Jerusalem, uh, but the the characters that we'll meet later on, like Esther and Mordecai, they have not returned. They are continuing to live uh, in the capital city of Susa. 
And we've titled the, this sermon, uh, we've titled it God on Every Page. God on every, yeah, we've got the sermon slide up there. God on every page. Because you'll notice that the author does not mention God on any page. Okay, as you read the book of Esther, God is not mentioned on any page. There's no mention of prayer. There's no mention of prophecy. There's no mention of all the things that we find in other books of the Bible. And so you can be reading the book of Esther and think, wait a minute, is this even the Bible? Like, what am I reading? Why is this in here? But, but here's why Esther is so cool and such a unique uh, book to go through. It's because of the way that it is written. The way that it is written, it is an invitation to us. It's an invitation to us to look for God on every page. But then we're not going to stop there. We're not going to stop there because not only do we need to see God on every page of this book, but we need to see God on every page of our life, right? Because there are pages of our lives that feel like God was not there. We can't figure out how God was working or moving on that page. But the truth of the matter is that he was there. God is on every page. Are we looking for him or not? And so this is an invitation for us to look for God on every page, not only in Esther, but also in our lives. And so a common theme and a common doctrine we will be learning about throughout this book is the doctrine of God's providence. God's providence. And a concise and a, a helpful definition of God's providence is it is God's gracious oversight of the universe. God's gracious oversight of the universe. And if you want a little longer explanation of God's providence, then it's helpful to understand that it's really a combination of four other truths or attributes, okay? Uh, so number one, he, that he is in control. Number two, that he is in charge of how everything turns out. Number three, that he makes no mistakes. And number four, that he has his people's best interest at heart, okay? So if you're thinking about God's uh, providence, think that he is in control, that he is in charge of how everything turns out, that he makes no mistakes, and that he has his people's best interest at heart. And we are going to see this play out as the story of Esther plays out. We're going to see this be true as the story of Esther plays out. And I bet that you will see this be true as your life plays out as well. And last week, we we started into chapter one. Okay, so last week we started with chapter one, and, and the scene was getting set, all right? And the scene that was set was Xerxes was throwing an elaborate six-month party for all the leaders of the empire, all right? And then followed by that was a seven-day party for all the people of the capital city. And this was an extravagant party. I mean, it's, it's Xerxes flexing his muscle, showing off his power, his riches, his influence. This is the ruler of most of the known world at that time. And so the scene that is set is essentially the most powerful person in the world of the most powerful empire in the world, having the most elaborate party in the world. And we should walk away from last week. Like we walked away, we were impressed, right? Like you should, you should read the start of Esther 1 and you should be impressed. I mean, gold couches, like, come on. We're impressed. We're impressed. Okay, Xerxes, we're impressed. And that's where we pick up our story, okay? We're, we're impressed by this elaborate party. And let's pick it up in Esther 1, verse 9. Look with me at Esther 1, verse 9. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Xerxes. 
Okay, here, here we are. We're going to stop every time we're introduced to another character, okay? So here, our author is introducing us to another character, Queen Vashti. And Vashti means uh, beautiful or the best. That's the, the definition of the name Vashti. It means beautiful or the best. And so while Xerxes is having his party with the guys, uh, we see that Queen Vashti is also giving a feast for all the women. And on the last day of the feast, uh, when Xerxes was likely drunk and intoxicated, he calls for Queen Vashti, and he sends his seven eunuchs to go get her. Look at, look at verse 11. And they go get her to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. Now, we don't want to read too much into this, okay? Some commentators um, have speculated that, uh, that Xerxes was calling for the queen to come in, in only her royal crown, okay? We don't, we don't know that for sure. The text doesn't say that. Uh, but what we do know is that this is Xerxes wanting to show off her physical beauty, all right? Kind of like his, his trophy wife, kind of treating her like a possession. He's trying to show her off to the people. He's been impressing these people this, this whole week, right, by throwing them this elaborate party. He's been trying to show people just how powerful he is, how rich he is, how much influence he has. And now he wants to puff up his pride even more by showing off the physical beauty of his wife. And what we see is that he's, he's objectifying her. He's treating her like property. He's using her to puff up his pride and by showing off her beauty. Right? He's not, he's not calling her to come like show off how great her personality is or anything like that. He's not honoring her by this request. This is a despicable request. And this is not how any woman should ever be treated. And, and, yet, and yet here we are. The guy who has absolute power from India to Ethiopia, the, the, the guy who's, who's, who's absolutely kind of in control of this empire, he calls his wife to come, and look, and look what happens. Look back at verse 12. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Okay, I'll, Let's stop for a second. All, all throughout the story of Esther, what you will see is that it is written in such a way to produce some humor, okay? And so it's okay to smile or chuckle in church. I give you uh, permission, all right? But this is, this is, there's some humorous things that are going to happen in the story of Esther and in the way that it's told. And this is why last week we went to Psalm chapter 2, and we looked about how the, how the Lord laughs at those who think they're so powerful and strong, right? He, he laughs at them. And last week, right, we learned that when the world tries to flex its power, uh, uh, we, we often kind of tremble, and we trust our feelings, and we assimilate with whoever's flexing at us, or we despair. But that's not how the Lord reacts uh, when those in power flex. The Lord laughs, okay? The Lord laughs. And so uh, th think about this. Think about how this is now a little humorous. The most powerful man in the world who with one man, who with one word can command armies to wipe out civilizations, he cannot command obedience from his wife or from his own emotions, 
right? He can't even control his own emotions. He's about to be burning with anger. Look what happens. Look, he, he becomes enraged. His anger burns within him. This great Xerxes who has control of most of the known world cannot even control his emotions. Now here's what we can't do with this passage, and this is what some do when they try to teach from this book, okay? We cannot make this passage say something that it is not saying. All right? we, we have to be faithful to the text. And that's, that's something we try to do as we preach through uh, passages of Scripture for you. I don't come to a passage with, with my thoughts of what I want to say and then try to like put them in there. Uh, we really have to say what the text is saying. That's what it means to be faithful to the text. And so here's what I mean. Some have taken this passage and they have taught about the dangers of alcohol. All right? Because King Xerxes is this drunken king... Therefore, this text is teaching us about the dangers of alcohol. Which, listen, certainly there are dangers with alcohol. And certainly the rest of the Bible does not condone drunkenness. God speaks against being addicted to or controlled by any substance. But listen, that is not the main point of this text. And therefore, that's not where I can go this morning. All right? That's not, being faithful to the text means that we might at times go off onto tangents, but we try to keep the main point of the text as the main point of the sermon. All right, so we're not gonna we're not gonna go off on that direction with this. Or or others have taken it another direction. They've seen Vashti's refusal, <clears throat> and they've seen it as a talking point for women's rights and activism and standing up to men who would abuse them or use them. Which again, the Bible certainly does not condone any sort of abuse. The Bible does not condone any sort of objectification of women. And so the Bible totally speaks against that, but that's not the main point of this text, all right? So that's not where we're going. Also, others have then tried to take this text and tried to jump then to the New Testament teachings about men's and women's roles in marriage. Which again, not a bad thing to do. We want to teach about men's and women's roles in marriage. We did that some when we preached through First Peter. Uh, but that's not what Esther is about, okay? We're not going to take Xerxes and Vashti and then do like, like, like dissect their marriage, like what all is going on here? How does that apply to uh, Christian marriages now, okay? That would just be trying to force too much into what the text is not saying. So I want to be faithful to the text, okay? The main point of this text the main point of this text is that the powerful are not as powerful as they seem. All right? The powerful are not as powerful as they seem. Xerxes cannot control the will of another person. He's not that powerful. He, he could have forced Vashti, right? He's got soldiers. They could have gone. They could have arrested her. They could have, you know, dragged her and, and displayed her that way. But he's not powerful enough to change her will, okay? He's not powerful enough to, 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 to give her a desire to obey. He's not that powerful. And he's not powerful enough to even control his own emotions, his anger burns, and he's about to make some bad decisions because of that. Right? Someone who, someone who lets their anger burn and someone who uses women instead of loves and takes care of women, that is not a powerful man. That is a weak man. That is a weak man who would use or abuse women 
or objectify them or treat them as property. That is not a powerful man. That is a weak man. Xerxes is not as powerful as he would seem. And yet, God, the truly powerful one, is still working even in the midst of an anger-filled, raging alcoholic. And I think many of you, like you could agree and amen to that, right? Like that might be the story of your life. Even in the midst of an anger-filled, raging alcoholic, God was still working. God did not abandon you on that page of your life. That's not a page of your life that God forgot to show up on. He was working. He was there. Doesn't make it right whatever happened or whatever was done to you. Doesn't doesn't justify it. Doesn't make it right. But God was there. He was working. He was still graciously overseeing the universe. And you see, there are, there are those in this world who idolize this thing called power. And I won't, I won't sing that song, I've Got the Power, right? I, want, I wanted to, but I'm not going to. But listen, you know if power has become an idol, or what I mean by an idol, something that you worship instead of God, something that you have elevated in your life above God, all right? You know that power has become an idol when life only has meaning and you only have worth if you have power and influence over others. That's when power has become an idol, okay? Now, it's not wrong to have power. It's not wrong to have influence over others. If God gives you that role, that's not a wrong thing. But if life only has meaning and you only have worth if you have power or influence over others, then it has become an idol in your life that you need to repent of. If it's become something that you treasure more than Christ, you need to turn from it. You need to get rid of it. And maybe, and maybe some of you this morning, you, you worship the idol of power. And when you sense that your power or your influence over others, when you sense that that's being threatened, the emotion that you probably struggle with is anger, right? Like Xerxes, anger kind of burns and rises up in you. Think about this. What's the difference between your kid disobeying in the privacy of your own home and when your kid disobeys in the middle of a busy, packed restaurant? It's like something, something different happens in you, or at least it does for me. I'm not saying it should, but something different happens in you, right? At home, right, on your best day, on your most well-rested, well-caffeinated day, if, if a child disobeys, right, it's like, okay, this is the discipline. Go to timeout. This is what we're going to do. And right. What happens to you in the middle of a crowded, busy restaurant when your child disobeys? You're embarrassing me, right? You're, 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 there's like this anger rising up. Like, you're embarrassing me. All these people are going to perceive that I don't have, like, the power and the influence over you, right, that I thought. Like, I feel that being threatened by all these judgmental, like, eyes coming on me, right? Like, like I feel that being threatened. And so what happens is I get angry, right, and I snap at the boys, 
which is not right. I shouldn't, I shouldn't do that. I'm not condoning that. But listen, Xerxes becomes enraged because Vashti's refusal, it's, it's embarrassing and humiliating to him. I mean, here is this whole party to show off his power, to show off his influence. And really what Vashti's refusal was, it was, it was a threat to his power. Like maybe others could realize they could say no to him, right? He hadn't experienced that before as king of Persia, right? People did not say no to you. And so Xerxes is not as powerful as he would seem. And he's unstable. But there's maybe some hope for him because we're going to see that he's going to get advice from some close advisors, which, which generally that's a good, good rule of thumb, right? And so if we have Proverbs 11, uh, have Proverbs 11 verse 14, usually it's a good rule of advice to get some uh, uh, counsel from others. Proverbs 11 verse 14 says, Where there is no guidance, a people falls, but in an abundance of counselors there is safety. That's just some good wisdom right there, right? In an abundance of counselors, there is safety. So let's, let's see if an abundance of counselors provides some safety for Xerxes. Let's see what happens. Look at verse 13. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment. All right, so he calls, he calls his boys. He gets the seven princes of Persia. They're all his closest advisors. They, he gathers them all around them. And then he asks them in verse 15, according to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of King Xerxes delivered by the eunuchs. Then Mamukin said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media, who have heard of the queen's behavior, will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. Let's stop there. If Xerxes' problem emotion is anger, Mamukin's, which is a cool name, Mamukin, right? If you're looking for baby names, middle names, Mamukin, uh, if Xerxes' problem emotion is anger, Mamukin's problem emotion is anxiety, okay? Xerxes is unstable and angry. Mamukin is insecure and anxious. And he's so afraid that this whole Vashti thing is going to threaten his power and the power of men all throughout the Persian Empire. And if you worship the idol of power, and if you live for the desire to have power or influence over others, then you'll make some bad decisions and give some bad advice when you feel it threatened, right? He, they, all the advisors, they feel their power threatened, and they give bad advice. Look at the advice that he gives in verse 19. If it please the king... Let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Xerxes. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree uh, made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. 
This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Mamukin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. Okay, again, here, here's another kind of funny thing. All right, let me, let me try to help you see the humorous portions of this story, okay? This whole incident is about Vashti refusing Xerxes. And Xerxes is so embarrassed about it that he's now going to publicize it to the whole empire. All right, everyone's going to hear about it now, right? It, I mean, that's, that's kind of humorous. That's funny. And just, be, just because his advisors felt their power threatened as they realized they are not as powerful as they seem. They give bad advice, and this embarrassment gets publicized to the whole empire. But let's look a little bit for a a brief moment at these advisors, because we had such high hopes for them after reading Proverbs 11. Or at least I did, or I was trying to set you up to, to right? Like, we, we had an abundance of counselors. We thought that would provide some safety for Xerxes and Vashti and for the empire, but it did not. The, the hope was that in this abundance of counselors, at least one of them would be like, hey, Xerxes, you're drunk, man. Like, you're drunk, just sober up for a second, right? Like eat some bread, do something, right? Like just, just think about this. Maybe, maybe write the decree, save it in your email inbox till the next day and then come back to it. And if it's still a good one, then you can send it. But let's, let's just think about this for a second. That's not what his, his advisors did. Here's what his, his advisors went wrong. His advisors went wrong, and, and, and the way they went wrong is certainly something that we can apply to our own lives as we get counsel from others, okay? So, so listen to this. Xerxes surrounded himself with people who only pointed out how he had been wronged instead of how he was wrong. I'll read it again. Xerxes surrounded himself with people who only pointed out how he had been wronged instead of how he was wrong. Okay, this is important for us, right? As we look to surround ourselves with an abundance of counselors, don't look for a bunch of yes men or yes women who are just going to come to your side and just empathize with you. Right? That's what they're doing. Oh, King Xerxes, I can't believe Vashti would do this to you. That's horrible. You're the greatest. Right? Right? Like, that's what the advisors are doing, right? Like, they're just, it's like, oh, King Xerxes, like, oh, no. And that's what we often do as well, right? Like, that's who we look to surround ourselves with. But listen, church, no, you've got to surround yourself with people who will be honest with you. And we'll call you out when you're being an idiot. You need that. I need that. All of us need that. God does not tell us to surround ourselves with a, an abundance of empathizers. He says, surround yourself with an abundance of counselors, right? Who will give you biblical counsel. That's who we are to surround ourselves with. And so invite people into your life. Give them permission to give you biblical counsel. Okay, the powerful, listen, the powerful are not as powerful as they seem. We see this with Xerxes, 
And you and I need to be reminded of this every time we turn on the news and every time we scroll through our feed, that the powerful are not as powerful as they seem, right? Like if you, if you stress out, if you get anxious with the news or world events or anything happening, like put that on a, on a, a, a post-it note on your remote or on your computer or somewhere to remind you that the kingdoms of this world are not as powerful as they seem they are. And I hope that after reading about Xerxes, and I hope that after kind of looking at political leaders and world rulers around us, I hope you would see that the world needs a better king. The world needs a better king. The world needs a more powerful king. The world needs a better king to bow their knee to. And unlike the kings of this earth who are not as powerful as they seem, the, the true king is more powerful than we can even imagine. Because you see, the true king was working even during the Persian Empire, even in the midst of a raging alcoholic, even in the midst of a defiant Vashti, even in the midst of poor advisors, the true king was working. And this true king was orchestrating events in such a way to provide a way for Esther to enter our story and for Esther to then be used to save the people of God and for Esther to save the people of God. And by doing so, God would uphold his promises that he had made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You see, Jesus is the true and better king that we need to submit to. And unlike Xerxes, who called his wife to use her for her physical beauty, Jesus calls his bride to come and behold his beauty and his glory. And he does not call us with a sword or forcefully demand our obedience or allegiance, but no, he came and displayed his love sacrificially to us by his life, death, and resurrection. And this display of his love, this was powerful enough to change our hearts, to not just feel obligated to obey him, but it's actually powerful enough to change our hearts to cause us to want to obey him. Xerxes was not powerful enough to change the desires of his bride, but Jesus certainly is. Jesus certainly is. Look, look uh, at Philippians 2 with me. We'll, we'll have it up on the screen. If you want to turn there, uh, please turn there. We're going to be in a few, few verses in Philippians chapter 2, uh, verses 8 through 13. Philippians 2, verse 8. <clears throat> And being, speaking of Jesus, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I'll read verse 13 again. We usually like verse 12 because we, 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 are, we are by nature doers, but we also need to understand verse 13. For it is God who works 
in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Even the desire to obey God is a gift from God. It is God working in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. And it is only the power of God displayed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that has the power to change defiant hearts to obedient hearts. Xerxes wasn't powerful enough to do that. I'm not powerful enough to do that. None of the world leaders are powerful. Like, like only Jesus can change hearts, can turn lovers of self into lovers of God. Like, where does the power come from to will and to work? It comes from God. And the, the psalmist sings of this as well in Psalm 119. Psalm 119, verse 32. We'll have it up on the screen. They write, I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. May the Lord enlarge our hearts for him. King Jesus is a king who, although because of our sin, we deserve to be banished from his presence, much like Vashti was. But no, King Jesus is a king who took the banishment for us. He took it in our place as he willingly went to the cross and he was separated from the presence of the Father so that we would no longer have to be separated from God. And for those who now turn from their sin and trust in his work on their behalf, he now clothes us in, this, in his beautiful righteousness. King Jesus does not call the attractive to use them for the, uh, their beauty, but he actually calls those who, because of their sin, were the ugliest and the most wretched, but we are then made lovely because of his love. The true king makes the unlovely lovely. We are made lovely because of his love. And Jesus came to show us that God is not like the kings of this world, who banish people from their presence never to return. No, our God through Jesus has made a way for us to be restored into his presence. Jesus is the better king. Now listen, to have, to have power and influence over others is not necessarily a bad thing. But it becomes an idol it becomes a God thing when we desire that more than we desire Christ. When we use people to try to obtain it. And when we respond with anger when it is threatened. When our pride becomes puffed up by it. I mean, look throughout the history books, okay? Power and influence has had some corrupting effects on many, many people. You can't deny that. Just do a study of people in power. There are some corrupting effects that it happens, right? We've talked about this before. You see it on a small degree, just playing Monopoly with your family, right? Something strange happens with the person who's winning. Like, 
It's Monopoly, man. Like, you're not, you're not Xerxes. Like, why are you demanding me to go get you drinks and stuff? Like, it's not, this is, right? So we see this. We see power and influence. It has this corrupting influence on us. We can't be naive to that, all right? So it's not wrong to be in positions of power and influence. Praise God if he raises you up and gives you that sphere of influence. But don't be naive to think that you are beyond any sort of uh, corrupting effects of power and influence. So what is the antidote? What is the antidote? What's the, what's the solution? Because God is going to give some of us power and influence over others. And really, you could probably argue we all have some influence in, in some way or another in every sphere of life. So how do we not become prideful and corrupted by, by it? Well, let, me, let me read for you. You don't need to turn there. From Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. Jesus is talking to his disciples in Matthew 20, verse 25, he says, But Jesus called, to them, uh, called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, Jesus is not only our Savior, but he is also our example. And he, our, our true king, has more power and more influence over others than any other king or ruler in the world. And he came to serve. He came to serve. You see, for us, serving others in the name of Jesus, it cultivates humility. And this is the antidote to growing prideful in whatever power or influence the Lord would give you. We must cultivate hearts of humility through serving others in the name of Jesus. Now let me, I'm going to let, I'm to let you in a little bit to what my week has been like leading up to this. Uh, it all started going downhill at Citigroup on Tuesday night. Uh, sorry for those of you that are in our Citigroup, all right? So first night of Citigroup for the semester, we're excited. Kids are like amped, right? Everyone's in, packed house, okay? And Joel just starts blowing chunks, right? He just starts throwing up everywhere, right? The, the smell is really lingering, like how can a small child produce those vapors, and uh, it's settling. It's a heavy, it's a settling, so everyone's like smelling it, right? And, uh, and after one time, we're like, ah, oh, maybe he just kind of coughed and it happened. And, but, but then it's just repeated vomiting, right? Just repeated vomiting. At that point, it's like, all right, every man for himself, like make a break for it. We're sorry. Uh, I, was a, I was a little worried I was going to come. Like everyone in our city group's like sick or hospitalized. I don't think that's the case. Uh, we've been praying that no one else would get sick. But, but uh, essentially, ever since Tuesday night, there has been someone in our house uh, vomiting since that time. So it's just kind of gone one, uh, one to the other. Uh, you know, nights of, of kids like uh, boys in our room just uh, vomiting. And, uh, and so it's been kind of a rough week. And so ever throughout the week, I'm just kind of thinking, okay, I'll just kind of, I'll, I'll do some sermon prep here and there. I'll work my days at the hospital. But at least I know I have Saturday uh, to, to prep for the sermon. And then Saturday morning comes, and Brittany wakes up uh, sick, really, really sick. 
And uh, if you, uh, you might, your household might be like this, like life can still kind of go on when one of the boys are sick, uh, but when Brit is sick, uh, everything shuts down, right? It's like this life, how will we even survive the day? I don't know. And uh, so Brit was sick uh, all day yesterday. And, uh, and I'm starting to kind of initially freak out and stress out because I've got this big important uh, sermon to write, right? Like this is so important. I've got to write a uh, curriculum for our next steps class, uh, which we are having right after the service in that classroom. And, uh, and so I'm kind of stressing out and, uh, and listen, pre- preaching the word, it is an important thing. So I don't want to make light of that. It, whoever is preaching should prepare in their study and in their prayer. Uh, but what the Lord did to me yesterday was very humbling. Uh, because as I'm, you know, uh, changing diapers and feeding them and rocking them to sleep and getting ice chips for people, and I'm stressed out about when I'm going to write this sermon, because I know a good sermon can be so powerful, right, in people's lives. Like, this is a powerful thing, preaching God's Word. This is important. And then God just kind of humbled me yesterday with the thought, like, yeah, preaching is important. Preaching can be powerful. But God is the only one powerful enough to change hearts. Like, like yeah, like more time to craft an attention-grabbing uh, introduction or a well-placed transition or a powerful, concise, like, conclusion. Like, I might think that's powerful and that's going to do something for the kingdom. But that ain't powerful enough to change anybody's heart in here. King Jesus is the only one with that kind of power. And so what a, what a humbling antidote serving my boys and my wife was yesterday. And, and not only an antidote to my, my lack of power, but, but, but as I abided with Jesus in serving others, I, I got the opportunity to really rest in and enjoy his power and not my own. And so as I conclude this morning, um, I hope that you are starting to see God on every page. I hope that even on pages that are full of illness and vomiting and dirty diapers, I hope you'll even see God on that page as well. Even on pages with an angry, drunken king, with a bad group of advisors, and with the refusal and banishment of Queen Vashti, I hope you can see God on that page and how God is working a plan to protect and preserve his people, a people who all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through the coming of Jesus, who will be born in the line of King David. And Jesus is the true king that it is a joy to submit to this morning. So know this, church. Know, church, that the the powerful of the world are not as powerful as they seem, and that King Jesus will work even in the midst of their unpredictable and bad decisions. And if the Lord chooses us to give give any of us power or influence over, uh, over others, may we use that as an opportunity to serve others and to serve our great King. So let's pray.